Indeed, today is our second message in our, our family month, and uh, as we think about singleness, marriage, and sexuality, some of you maybe are stuck on the last word in those three, and I want to be clear about something just to manage expectations, that this is uh, really more of a, a message on identity and uh, the gospel than necessarily sex. So bear that in mind, and we'll see by the end if I've achieved my goal today. There is one definitive chapter in the whole Bible on these subjects. The Bible has a lot to say about it in various places, but there is one chapter that has the reservoir of most of the Bible's teaching on these, and it is, as I mentioned a moment ago, 1 Corinthians 7. So today, I'm gonna preach the whole chapter. Okay? I'm going to preach the whole chapter, and uh, that doesn't mean I'm going to read all of it. I certainly will not, but I am going to give the gist of all of it, and to note that the Apostle Paul is actually responding to a question that the church at Corinth wrote him a letter and asked. There was a series of questions, but one of them was, what about marriage and singleness and, uh, and, ce- and celibacy? And uh, so we derive from that that the early church Christians were a lot like we are with a lot of questions about those subjects. They're very, they were very interested in them, and, and uh, we remain so today. Now, I also want to acknowledge that on these subjects, there are hundreds, maybe thousands of rabbit trails that we could go down. And... We live in a society now that is as confused and, uh, and, and in disarray on the subject as, as ever. I'm not going to do so much of that. Rather, this message is to put forth the positive biblical vision for marriage, singleness, and sexuality, and hope that positive vision answers many of the questions. So, with that said... I'm gonna not do what I normally do. We're not gonna start in verse one because the center of this chapter's teaching is actually well into the chapter. What I'm calling the soul, or really the the basis of what he says, is later in, in the chapter. Now, if you did happen to look at the first verse, you'll notice there the question where they wrote Paul a letter and they said, they asked the question, is sexual abstinence better? So, Paul isn't saying that. That's the Corinthians asking him the question. And the rest of the chapter is the Apostle Paul's answer to that question. It is very important to realize that the church at Corinth existed amidst a sexual culture that would make Las Vegas blush. The goddess of Corinth, Aphrodite, who was the was the Roman god of of sex, had her own temple there in Corinth. And it was expected that the good and upstanding citizens of the city of Corinth would regularly go to worship at the temple and to have relations with the male and female, hetero and homo, prostitutes. So imagine being a child, for example, growing up in Corinth where this was just the normal, accepted sort of way that you did things and good religious people, that's what they did. 
you can see how this is so upside down. Now, noting also, we live in our own digitized Corinth today. The Corinthian world today, the Aphrodite temple today, is the pornified internet. And even if you're not on porn sites, just being on the internet is to be uh, assaulted with images of soft porn, etc. We like to think that we have progressed. We're so much better than the ancient man. And yet, we are so much the same. And, of course, we are uh, the same. The Corinthians were, were pornified because they were sinners, and we are pornified because we are, at heart, sinners as well. And so there was confusion. This church at Corinth believed Jesus, living in this totally sexualized culture. They write Paul, and they're like, help! We don't know how to think about these things. What about marital status, and what about sexuality? And so the soul of the chapter, like the basis of everything that he says, begins in verse 29. Here's what he says. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none. I'm going to explain this in a moment. Don't jump on that. And those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. So Paul answers this question in chapter seven through the same grid that he looked at everything. And the grid was, what difference has the coming of Jesus, his death on the cross, his resurrection, what difference does that make about the way that we should view these categories of human life? That moment that Jesus walked out of that tomb forever changed everything, okay? Forever changed everything, and that includes our whole perspective on marriage, singleness, sexuality, and celibacy. There is, a, there is a new age that has come. There is a redemption, and there is a redemptive history that is now at work. This world and the things connected with this world, verse 31, are passing away. Do you see that? The present world is the, is the old world. It is not the new world. This present world is not the new kingdom. In the new kingdom of Jesus, we are no longer defined or determined by whether we are married or not, or whether we are single or not, or whether we are free to have sex or not. Our identity in the new world is our identity in Christ and as members of the family of God. Okay, that, I might want you to visit more often, that, <laughs> that trumps the old, okay? So Jesus' resurrection was the inauguration, the beginning, the genesis of the new age, the future world invaded this world. The power of the, of the future kingdom came into this one. So that now we are citizens of the kingdom of heaven. 
And the challenge we have then is that we live with one foot in the kingdom of man and one foot in the kingdom of heaven. And we're called to live in the kingdom of man according to the values of the kingdom of heaven, which are different than the values of the kingdom of man. And what Paul does is he, he illustrates this with five examples of normal priorities in this world that are no longer determinative categories. Marriage, grief, rejoicing, the buying of material goods, and business dealings. And in each of these, he says, hey, as a Christian, you know what? This is no longer ultimate in your life. This is not the big thing in your life anymore. Why? Because they are all earthly activities that are connected to a world that is passing away. Let me illustrate it this way. Think about the Titanic. When, that, when the Titanic left the port, there was a set of values on the ship. You had first class, second class, third class. You had, uh, you had uh, political influence and famous people and not so famous people and you know, the first class people with the caviar and the nice clothes and the, you know, the, the string quartet. And then you had the, the, the third class people just you know, doing whatever they were doing. And you, you, there was a value set when the ship left the port. But one second after the Titanic hit the iceberg, all the values changed, okay? The old values disappeared and new ones emerged, okay? The jewelry didn't matter anymore. The fine clothes and the stringed instruments didn't matter anymore. What level you were on didn't matter anymore. How nice your clothes were didn't matter anymore. What mattered one second after they hit the iceberg? Life. Saving your life became the number one value. If you were sitting on one of those lifeboats and some rich guy came and said, I'd give you a billion dollars right now to give me your seat, would you take it? And obviously, no, right, no. Why? Because the values had changed. And that is the point that Paul is making here related to these questions is that the world experienced a cataclysmic event, even though they don't realize it mostly, when Jesus stepped out of that grave and the power of the future kingdom now became in the present kingdom, okay? And so what 1 Corinthians 7 is doing for us is it is explaining marriage, singleness, sex, and celibacy according to the values of the future kingdom, even as we live in this kingdom. How should we look at these things? How important are they anymore? Jesus said this to a question similar regarding marriage. He said, the sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy to attain that age and to the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage, for they cannot die anymore. Because they are equal to angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. There is no marriage in heaven. Now for some of you, that is a relief. <laughs> and for some of you, you are sad about that. Sex is also not a thing in eternity. Okay? We are all celibate singles 
like the angels in heaven. Now, this is a common question that when people are actually honest, they will maybe whisper to the pastor and say, I'm a little confused here because how can there be no sex in heaven? And the best answer I've ever heard on that was from C.S. Lewis, who he explained it this way. He said, uh, it's kind of like a young boy who can't, he can't imagine sex being better than chocolate or why you wouldn't eat chocolate during intimacy. Since he can't imagine anything better than chocolate, the absence of chocolate, by definition, is a bad thing, no matter what the pleasure is. And similarly, he says, we can't fathom the pleasures of heaven. We've never experienced them. They are maximal beyond our experience, and so therefore we can't imagine heaven without sexual intimacy, even though the promise of scripture is that heaven's pleasures are far better. So there you go, okay? So to review, okay, what are we saying? The kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of Christ, makes us dual citizens, living in both a world that is passing away and a world that will never pass away, called to live in this world according to the values of the new kingdom, of which we are blessed to be citizens. All praise to God. So how do we do that? Okay, so let's get specific now. What about marriage then? What about marriage? Now we go back to the beginning of the chapter. Look at verse two. But because of the, te- of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer. But then come together again, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now, the Bible has a lot more to say about this than what we just read, okay? So I'm acknowledging that. Ephesians 5, for example, that marriage is ultimately a picture of Jesus in the church. And I would encourage you to to go to that. But what Paul is doing here is he is affirming the inherent goodness of marriage and the inherent goodness of sexuality within marriage. That marriage is a gift. It has freedoms and it has responsibilities. Now, the one that he highlights here regarding freedoms is the one that is connected to the question that the Corinthians asked him regarding sexuality. Remember, they are living in Aphrodite's playground and there is just all kinds of craziness all around them and they're like, we don't know how to think about this. And so what Paul says is that sexual freedom within marriage sets a protection for the marriage and the spiritual life of your spouse. How? Sexual intimacy in marriage is holy. Get that. It is holy. It is inherently good. Here's Hebrews 13. The marriage bed is pure and undefiled. Okay, so get this. The pleasure of sexuality in marriage acts as a protection against the sexual destruction outside the marriage. Okay? Did you get that? It's a a protection. 
Now, the verse here, I want you all to hear this, is no endorsement of abuses in the marital bed. It endorses love and love's protection. Okay? Now, I've heard it described this way. Think about fire in a fireplace in a home. Here we are in the winter. If you have a fireplace, especially like over Christmas, <laughs> that was cold, wasn't it? And that fireplace, you know, a fire in the fireplace uh, is, a, is a wonderful thing. It keeps the house warm. But outside its proper place, it burns the house down. And that sexuality is like that. Within its proper, biblical, God-intended place, it keeps the marriage warm. But outside of that, it burns the house down. And have we not all, if you've been around very long, been around the block a few times, you have no doubt seen the incredible damage that happens when sexual fire burns houses and marriages and families down. So marriage, then, is a protection, okay? And God made it pleasurable so that we would desire that protection and rejoice in the children that that protection produces, which is a whole other part of this theology that I'm not getting into today. But uh, a, a quick summary, okay? Quick summary would be this. The purpose of sexuality in marriage is pleasure, protection, and production, as in reproduction. There's more to it, but there's your simple outline. Okay, now, how should we think about this as citizens of the future kingdom living in this kingdom? Marriage is good if you desire it and wisdom allows for it. Hear that. If you desire it, now if you don't want to get married, don't get married, okay? But there are circumstances that may, by wisdom, call for it at times, at other times it may not. And I think we need to hear this because for centuries the church got this wrong. And there is a continued ancient church that continues to get this wrong. What did they miss? When God created Adam and Eve, he made them sexual. He made them gendered so that in marriage they could come together and fulfill the cultural mandate, which is to be fruitful uh, and to multiply and to subdue the earth. So also gender, marriage, and sexuality were part of God's assessment when on day six he looked at all of that and said it is very good. God is not embarrassed by it, you know. When a couple is in, in, in marriage uh, enjoying that, he, God's not in heaven going, hurry up, okay? <laughs> All of this is God's idea. He created it. And he rejoices in it, and it also brings glory to him. So, the Bible is pro-marriage and pro-sexuality, and Christianity should be robustly pro-marriage and pro-sexuality. It is a precious gift, get this, if God has called you to it, okay? Now, in a few verses, Paul's gonna talk to singles and young people in the church who are pondering whether or not they should get married. And here's what he says in verse nine. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. 
Now, dating couples, for dating couples, that's the only verse in their Bible. I guess we gotta get married because we've got lots of passion. I've read about the marriage rates for drafted men in World War II before they left, and it's unbelievably high. And that was a societal day where it was expected that you would get married before you would uh, be sexually intimate. And so those men very much wanted to get married. Unfortunately, now we live in a day where Aphrodite's values have invaded even the evangelical churches of America. I don't have time to get into all of this, but I do want you to see that the Bible's ethic is that marriage is the outlet for passion. I am dismayed at how often around here we have a, an engaged couple that comes to us and they want to get married. And they want a Christian marriage and they want a Christian pastor in a Christian church. And on their marriage application, it's very clear by the address that they are already living together. In Corinth, that's just the way it goes. That's expected. But we are the church of Jesus Christ. We are living according to a different kingdom. Sex is reserved for marriage. We've got to say that, okay? Sex is reserved for marriage. Nor should celibate Christians, considering getting married, base their entire decision on this one single issue. I remember when I was, when I was single, I heard, I heard a pastor, and he basically said that. He said, don't get married for sex. It is not enough of a reason alone to get married. And that is so true, okay? That is true. I can say that as a married man, and also observe, observe that if, if that was enough of a glue, a reason to get married, all the Hollywood beautiful people who apparently are also very gifted in their sexuality, they get paid to do it on films, would all stay married and love it. But few of them do. Why? Because this is not what marriage is about. This is not the primary binding thing in marriage. It is not the sexual life, but the spiritual life and the integrity it takes to keep your promises in your marital vows. It is an ethical function, not a body one. It is more integrity than intimacy. Dexter, did you like that? I thought of you when I wrote that. That's the way you preach right there. Here's how Dexter would have said that. It is more integrity. I'm not done yet. Then intimacy. Okay. All right, so that's marriage and sexuality. I gotta keep going here. Uh, what about singleness and celibacy? Okay, what about that? I want you to see in verse seven that Paul calls both of them a gift. Marriage is a gift. Singleness is a gift. 
to ask the question, does our church honor both? Actually. And I know this because for 15 years, this church had a single senior pastor. And by the way, that was me over those years. The bachelor pastor. And over time, it didn't seem that odd in our church that we would have a single pastor because that's just the way that it was and I'd been here a long time. I recently took a class that... uh, They had experts, national experts, on large churches in America, and somehow in their research they determined that at that time I was the only single pastor of a church like ours or larger in the entire United States. (laughs) That is true. And why is that? Because most churches wouldn't consider a single pastor, and certainly not large churches. So we were the weird exception. But I take from that, and I would affirm from 100 stories I could tell you, that the evangelical church, in my opinion, has too low a view of singleness, okay? Too low. Listen as Paul lists some of the advantages of being single. He says in verse seven, first of all, I wish that all were as I myself am. We note that the Apostle Paul, at least when he wrote this, was single. He says, it is good for them to remain single as I am, in verse eight. Now he adds later that this is in part because of a distress that was going on in the world at the time. And scholars are not sure what that distress was, probably or maybe a famine. And so because of circumstances, maybe this is a time not to commit in marriage, but what it does show here is that the decision to get married is in part a wisdom one that is based on life's circumstances. It is not a rush of passion, let's just go get married. No, this is something to be reasoned and considered and prayerfully thought and wise counsel to be sought from. Paul wants those considering marriage to realize a few things, verse 28, that those who marry will have worldly troubles. Verse 32, the unmarried are anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. He says, that's better. Focused on the Lord. Now, by the way, I need to note, as at least they should be. Christian singleness should be an opportunity with undistracted devotion to focus on the things of God as you live your life. Unfortunately, too many Christian singles use it selfishly. I think about the old show Friends as an example of what singleness turned inward looks like. That is not the way that Christian singles should be. Verse 33, the married bear burdens how to please their spouse. And the married people are going, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Now, dear church, I want you to listen to me because I think I'm in a unique position to speak to this. Because I have spent two-thirds of my adult life single and one-third of my adult life married, 10 years now. And uh, so I've lived both of these. And, you know, when you're single, you don't know what you don't know. You wonder what it's like to be married, but you don't know what it's like to be married because you've never been married. And I, uh, I remember reading this text, and actually, I preached 1 Corinthians 7 as a single man when we preached through uh, Corinthians. And I remember going, this is what the Bible says, but in my heart I'm like, is it really that way? (laughs) 
Like what Paul says that, you know, the burdens of marriage versus the freedoms of singleness. Hey, you know, there's a lot of advantage to the single, but in my heart, I'm like, I'm not so sure, right? I'm not so sure. I'm here to tell you that, surprise, surprise, the Bible has it right. <laughs> Shocker, I know. But the Bible has it exactly right. In my experience, being single is much easier. It's an easier life. Now, I didn't say better. I also wouldn't say necessarily worse. It is just different, okay? The highs of married life and parenting, I would say, are higher and greater than in my singleness. In fact, the majority of the greatest moments in my life have been during my married years. But when you're not married, what happens is you tend to focus on all of the marital privileges that you don't get to enjoy. I remember when I was single, I, I, was, I was pastoring this church, I went on this overseas missions trip with, a, with another pastor, and we were gone for like three weeks, something like that, and, and on our way back, he and I were friends, you know, we tease each other, and he, would, he was teasing me uh, in a dude sort of way, telling me over and over how he couldn't wait to get home and be intimate with his wife. And noting that I was just going to go home to that cold, lonely house. <laughs> over and over, he said it. In my heart, I'm kind of like, I'm so happy for you, you know. <laughs> and the point is this. It's easy for singles, especially men, I think, to focus on the marital privileges that are not privileges that you get to enjoy, and to underestimate the other part of the responsibilities that go along with being a husband and a father. So in this case, with this guy, to uh, you know, realize that he was gonna be going home to a wife who might have been upset about something, likely was, and Kids that needed his time and who probably broke something in the house while he was gone. His bills were higher. His burdens were greater. So take it from the once bachelor but now married pastor. There is way more drama with a spouse and kids than when you're single. I mean, way more. <laughs> Way. And that's just the kids' part of it. I went home to my quiet, lonely house, but you know what I did? Whatever I wanted to. I think there are a lot of singles who think, man, if I could be married for a week. And there's just as many married people going, man, if I could be single for a week. <laughs> and I say this because I think that we need to be honest with young people and singles about that reality. And to not have this subtle, you know, what's wrong with you if you're not married thing. 
I know what that condescending look is like. I remember <laughs> I'd meet new people and they'd be like, so where's the wife? You know, I'd be like, well, I'm, I'm single. I'm just like, <gasps> <laughs> have you read 1 Corinthians 7? You should go read that. I also think, and I want everyone to listen to this, this should very clearly inform the kind of person that we should marry. Our world values the outward and says focus on that. The Bible calls, according to the values of the future kingdom, to think inwardly, the character qualities. I would urge you, if you are single or a young person, to think about the kind of person that you wanna be married to when you're old and when she's old. Don't think honeymoon, think more like nursing home. <laughs> if you marry him for his hair. <laughs> if you love her for her shape. All of those things are passing away. Okay. But if you marry somebody who is beautiful inwardly, that beauty over time, if they're a Christian, because of the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit, is going to get more and more beautiful and more and more desirable. You know, Jay Packer, he notes this in his, uh, he has a book on the Puritans, wonderful book, I'd highly recommend it, but he notes that the Puritan marriages, which they practiced arranged marriages, the Puritans did, that the Puritan main, uh, marriages would, in terms of like passion, would start cold, but then heat up over time, versus what is common in our culture, where they start hot and then grow cold over time. I wonder if we might be looking for the wrong type of person. I also may add that with two daughters, I'm increasingly in favor of arranged marriages. <laughs> Why do we get away from that? I don't know. Any parents amen that? If you amen that, I could meet you after the service and we could make a little arrangement. <laughs> so let me double down here. Singles, widows, widowers, celibates, by choice and circumstance, are all honored and respected in our church as much as any married man or woman, period. And don't forget, we gather every Sunday to worship Jesus, the single Savior of the world. Here's my last main point. Although I've been enjoying this, I hate to see it end. <laughs> if a single Christian chooses to marry, their spouse must be a Christian. Paul makes this point in verse 39. A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes. Notice, only in the Lord. 
Okay, that's describing somebody else who is also a follower of Jesus. Now, earlier in the text, Paul addresses marriages where one spouse is a Christian and one spouse is not. What should they do? Imagine that would be the case in Corinth. You know, a husband became a Christian, or the wife did. Do, do we leave? What do we do? And he says, listen, if your unbelieving spouse wants to remain, you remain married to them. Okay? But if they leave or if they die, you are no longer bound to that covenantal oath to them, you are free to remarry, but this qualification, the new spouse must be a Christian. And singles and young people, I want you to listen to old Pastor Steve here on this point, because this will save you untold sorrow in your life. Don't marry anyone who is not a highly committed follower of Jesus, okay? A Christian. And I want to warn you, even the title Christian in our culture is loosey-goosey. Cults call themselves Christians. Denominations that have long ago given up the true gospel call themselves Christians. Don't ask the dude, are you a Christian? It means almost nothing. The issue is, does their personal faith and practice align with your own beliefs? And is this a clear pattern of priority in their life? If you're a cute girl, there's no, almost any unbelieving guy with a hormone in his body will go to church with you. <laughs> have, you, have, you have, have you seen uh, my big fat Greek wedding as an example of how this can go? Can I urge you to make this the first conversation in your relationship, not the last? I have known couples that have dated for quite a while, and I'll ask one of them, maybe the one who, you know, a daughter of our church, I'll say, uh, you know, what's your boyfriend's spiritual faith like? And I will sometimes get the response, I don't know. And I'm like, what do you mean you don't know? What are you talking about that is more important than his relationship with Jesus? Forget the, what's your favorite pizza topping? And how many kids do you want to have? And do you like three-bedroom or four-bedroom houses? And all the junk you talk about in marriage and lead with this one. Let's talk about Jesus. Okay? Do it first. Because what happens is, if you don't, your feelings and your hormones get engaged with this person. And listen, you are far better off single and celibate than married and sexual with someone who isn't following Jesus with you. So, if you are in a dating relationship like that right now, I would urge you to call time out to get counsel, be nice about it. But by all means, only marry a committed, marry a committed Christian. And by the way, a good place to start is only dating committed Christians. There's a lot more to say there, okay? But let's now review, okay? Let's bring it all home here, bring it all back together. What are we seeing? A Christian lives with one foot in this world and one foot in the next. We are called to live in the, Christian, uh, in the kingdom of man by the values of the kingdom of God. 
Marriage, singleness, sexuality, gender are all good gifts from God with their own sets of freedoms and responsibilities. And we are called to purity both in marriage and in singleness, and both categories must be honored in the church without making either of them our ultimate identity. Why is that? Because they are categories that are passing away, or perhaps better understood, these are categories being fulfilled and perfected and consummated by Jesus. Praise God, our forever identity is in him and with him. Amen.